Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. With today's episode, we introduce a new recurring segment on the pod, Andrew Talks to Chefs Special Conversations. Our first subject and guest, fine dining in the crosshairs with Angie Marr, chef and owner of Le Trois Chavaux in New York City. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. We are introducing a new recurring feature on the pod, starting with this episode, freestanding Andrew Talks to Chefs special conversations. In these shorter episodes, which will run about 30 minutes, give or take, we will invite an expert or two onto the podcast to discuss subjects that are on the minds of the industry. My hope is to feature chefs, cooks, owner-operators, culinary students, farmers, purveyors, platform providers, and other experts who are uniquely positioned to speak to them. You'll be able to easily recognize these conversations in our feed and on our website. They will not be numbered as our regular biographical episodes are, and they will have titles followed by the name of our guest or guests. And speaking of biographical episodes, I want to make sure no one misses it. We just this same date launched our first biographical episode of the year with Gregory Gourdet, a chef I'm sure many of you are familiar with from his restaurant Con in Portland, from his book Everyone's Table, from his appearances on Top Chef. So please be sure to look for that one in close proximity to this one in your feed If you are a subscriber, and if you're not currently subscribing, please do that. It is free, and you can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever it may be, uh, and you'll get our shows as they launch, and I highly recommend doing that. So I've been holding off on launching this year's episodes of the show largely because I haven't quite figured out how I want these special conversation episodes to look or sound, but I decided I didn't want to wait any longer. Uh, So I ask your indulgence over the next weeks and months as I play around with the format. My hope is that once we hit our stride with these, we will drop an average of two per week in addition to our regular biographical shows. Before we dive into today's show, a reminder that you could and should, I believe, follow us on Instagram, at Chef Podcast is our handle there. We drop a post every time a new show goes up. And if you want to follow my personal writing and restaurant adventures, 
My personal feed on Instagram is at Toakland Andrew, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D, Andrew. So for our inaugural special conversation, our topic is fine dining in the crosshairs. And our guest is Angie Marr, chef and owner of Le Trois Chevaux in New York City. And before that, of the very popular restaurant Beatrice Inn, also in New York City. What do I mean by fine dining in the crosshairs? Well, for years now, a significant portion of the food media has periodically engaged in a no pun intended feeding frenzy, writing articles about the supposed coming demise of fine dining. The latest fuse was lit when Rene Redzepi of Noma Restaurant in Copenhagen announced that the restaurant would close at the end of 2024 because the model of fine dining engaged in there was, quote, unsustainable. To be honest, personally, I found the idea that something unsustainable could voluntarily close 24 months from now, which is about when the end of 2024 is coming, rather than closing immediately or in the coming weeks or months. To my mind, that is a self-negating statement on its face. But rather than probe that aspect of the announcement, many outlets and publications have taken the opportunity to once again herald the so-called end of fine dining. Noma is closing. Are we seeing the end of fine dining? Read a headline in The Guardian. The end of Noma and the future of fine dining, read a headline in Forbes. And on and on it went. The articles have kept coming. I recorded this conversation with Angie a little over a week ago when we sat down. It had been a week since the Noma news. And even then, uh, there had been this avalanche of stories. Additionally, many of the think pieces have taken the opportunity to examine such practices as unpaid internship in restaurant kitchens, also, of course, called stages or stagiaires, and abusive kitchen culture. Meanwhile, some major critics are seemingly shunning notable new restaurants, not choosing to review them. And these are restaurants that fall squarely, I would say, on the, the upper end of the fine dining spectrum. Uh, of course, it is these critics' choice what they review, but I find the decision to be conspicuous to say the least. Personally, and I just speak for myself here, I think it is unmistakable that a segment of the food media seems personally invested in trying to make the end of fine dining a reality, either by perpetuating certain narratives or denying certain restaurants the vital coverage they need to have a chance for survival. And here's just one small example of what I'm talking about. In the New York Times article announcing the closing of Noma, before delineating the grievances of past interns of that restaurant, the piece states that because of the value of a Noma internship on a resume, quote, most of the alumni interviewed said that an internship at Noma is worth the expense, the exhaustion, and the stress, end quote. Most people interviewed felt that way. Again, most so then why does the article dismiss the majority of people interviewed with one sentence? Could it be to fulfill an agenda? I don't know the answer to that question, but it seems a more than valid question to ask and to examine. And incidentally, when Angie in this conversation references an article that talked about an intern who made fruit leather beetles in an internship, it is that New York Times article to which she 
refers. This subject also raises a more significant question to my mind, is the picture of the industry being portrayed in so many articles accurate and universal or highly selective? And for every cook who resents time spent working an unpaid internship, are there one or more who happily and voluntarily did the same? Just to put my cards on the table, I personally enjoy a full range of dining experiences, usually on the more casual side and rarely in a very expensive or tasty menu format. I believe personally that people should be paid for their work. At the same time, I understand the complexities of the intern culture of certain restaurants for both the restaurant and potential interns. I don't believe, of course, as no one should, in abusive environments, personally or professionally. And I believe that at a time when the entire industry is challenged by staffing, nobody has to work in a particular restaurant or type of restaurant that doesn't appeal to them. Literally hundreds of other places will hire you right now. In real estate terms, it is a seller's market. I should also say that I'm a fan of Le Trois Chevaux, which I think is not just an excellent restaurant, but also a rare and to me, invaluable way for modern diners to connect in a contemporary way with culinary tradition. And so I asked Angie Marr to come on the pod to discuss all of this with me. Again, Angie is the chef and owner of Le Trois Chevaux in Greenwich Village, New York. The restaurant opened in summer 2021 and pays homage to classic French cuisine and the mid 20th century French restaurants of New York City. It is a very specific style of food and restaurant. And despite the popularity of Angie's previous restaurant, the Beatrice Inn, and certain accolades for Le Trois Chavaux, such as inclusion on Esquire's best new restaurant list in 2021, the restaurant, a year and a half into its lifespan, has yet to be reviewed by a major New York City publication. Why is that? Why have other fine dining restaurants been similarly ignored? Isn't there room for all kinds of dining experiences in our cities and in the press? And just what do we mean when we talk about fine dining anyway? Do we all mean the same thing when we use that term? Angie and I get into all of that in the following conversation. Before jumping in, I just want to quickly say that our promotional partner on this podcast is a brand that obviously is enmeshed in the world of fine dining. That has nothing to do with this conversation. I run this podcast entirely autonomously with no oversight, consultation, or veto power by any other individual or organization. This happens to be the thing that I think is most in the news right now, so it is the topic of our first special conversation. I also want to be transparent that on the two occasions I dined at Le Trois Chavaux, without seeking this kind of consideration myself, the restaurant generously treated me to dinner. There was no quid pro quo, overt or implied, but I'm old-fashioned about disclosing this kind of thing, and if it sounds odd to you, take my word for it. There are plenty of people covering restaurants who are dining free of charge who take a much more critical approach than I do to writing and covering them. Um, so this is uh, something that's kind of relatively unusual in my life, but very common practice, uh, for better or for worse, probably for worse, uh, among the media. I also want to recognize that some of what I just said in this intro and what Angie and I say in our conversation will be unpopular with some listeners. I welcome any respectful dialogue and would happily 
book someone to come on the show and offer another point of view. I think it is essential, though, that we all be able to share our opinions and to have these conversations openly and with open minds. And it's one of the reasons I'm introducing these segments on the pod. If you want to reach out to me privately and personally, I welcome you to do that. My email is andrew at andrewtalkstochefs.com. And with all of that said, here is my conversation on the subject of fine dining in the crosshairs with Angie Marr. Here you go. We are sitting here at Le Trois Chavaux. We're here to talk about, I guess I would say, the state of fine dining and the disposition of the public and the press to fine Mm -hmm. dining. And I should say, we had planned to have this conversation before the news broke that Noma was going to be closing. I guess I kind of want to start there, maybe, because a lot of the press, and I'm trying to be very careful because a lot of these people are people I'm friendly with and respect Mm -hmm. and and read read all the time and whatnot, but it has been one of these, no pun intended, feeding frenzies Mm -hmm. to declare this is the moment. This is the historical demarcation line. Fine dining is over, right? Now, we've heard people say a version of this for years now. Let me just throw it in the most blanket way out there. Just Mm -hmm. what has your reaction been to watching all of this unspool for about a week now. Look, I've never had the the pleasure of dining at Noma, and I absolutely hope to before it closes. Me too. Maybe we can go together. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that when the news broke, it really kind of took me through the range of emotions, one of them being anger. You know, I was angry at the press and the way that it was being portrayed and sadness because I do think that restaurants like that must exist for us all. You know, when I say us all, I mean those of us that are in the kitchen creating, you know, those of us that are diners, um, those of us that just appreciate culture. Um, But there has to be different areas of the culinary arts and that category has to exist. Now, when you say has to exist, why why do you say it? You're, you're stating mm-hmm. an imperative, right? Because we can't all just eat fast casual all the time. It's called the culinary arts for a reason. And it makes me tremendously sad that a lot of people in food press have decided that there's only room for one category. And that is, you know, fast casual, cheap eats, places like Noma, you know, places that are, you know, on the cutting edge of haute cuisine, they're important because so many people, no matter what category of dining you're in, draw inspiration from places like that. That is a place where he can do the crazy, the obscure, and it fosters imagination. It fosters imagination in his diners, it fosters imagination in his cooks, it fosters imagination in me as just somebody from the outside looking in who, you know, is is another creative and I don't create. From half a world away. Exactly, yeah. I don't create in that way, but you know, I'm still in the kitchen creating every day and to look at his view of cuisine through his eyes, to see it from the outside, it is inspiring. Great art has to exist. For you, it's an art. For me, it's an art. Yeah, for me, it's an art. For me, it is a, you know, it's a point of view. But the other thing that I want to talk about is um, Jeff Gordonier from Esquire wrote a very lengthy piece. And 
uh, about his experience, you know, from looking at it from the outside and not really understanding it to, you know, having his imagination and his palate really awakened and to really his devotion to that restaurant as a patron. You know, I think that he shed light on a lot of topics that are tremendously important. You know, Julia Moskin wrote about, uh, you know, stages not getting paid. I've staged, you know, at my own expense, traveled to Paris, uh, you know, paid for my hotel, like all of the things that I've staged because I wanted to learn. I think it's really unfortunate that a lot, maybe some of food media, it almost seems like the majority at this point, have decided that this is bad. They've not worked in restaurants. They don't really seem to have a desire to understand how restaurants work or as a cook what stages do. It's just kind of like a looking from the outside, you know, at 30,000 feet. These points of view are not monolithic or universal, right? There's no. people who, that sh- I don't believe it should be a, a, a courageous thing to state that, but right now it kind of is to mm-hmm. say that you don't, you know, you, you did it, you don't have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. And there are people who do, and that's fine. You know, I had... Charlie Mitchell on the show recently, who's mm-hmm. the chef at Clover Hill mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, right? Mm-hmm. And because he's, I think, 31, he's early 30s, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, we had a mini fine dining chat because mm-hmm. I was like, hey, give me, you know, what's your take on things? Like fine dining is kind of under attack. And, you know, he gave me his opinion about that. And then I said, you know, I really think that there is this false world being portrayed and, and there are people who can't afford to do a stage or they mm-hmm. don't want to live in the way sometimes you have to live to work for nothing. Mm-hmm. And I do believe in the evolution of kitchen culture and I think it's moving in the right way in all kinds mm-hmm. of important ways. But I said to him, what nobody acknowledges when they write these articles is that there are people, young cooks today, mm-hmm. 18, 19, 20 years old, who happily will go work in mm-hmm. a dream restaurant for no money the way people were doing it 40, 50 years ago, right? Yeah. And he, now this is a guy now who has a restaurant, okay? Right. Just got a star. And he goes, I would. Yeah. This was just a few weeks ago on I the show. I would go do it now. He, yeah, he goes, I would for the right restaurant. No, I would no, go do it now. Yeah, but don't you think that's, mo- uh, not most, but don't you think that there is an entire population of young cooks? I know there is because. will still, do you get offers? I know there is because they extern for me. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So here's, but this never gets but mentioned. This never it's gets only mentioned. mentioned as if now again, if someone thinks that's bad, if someone thinks that's taking advantage, fine. That's fine. Yeah. I, but we ought so to be able to have these conversations, which I guess is why I'm doing this segment, this new yeah. thing on the show, right? But like, I feel like as we're talking, like, am I going to get hate mail for saying this? I'm. If if you have a problem with it, that's fine. Right. But if you don't, if you want to go do that, if you want to chase that um, rabbit, you know, uh, have at it. So first of all, I have externs. They come down from CIA. They're with me for three months and they go back. I do. I pay them. Absolutely. Are they shocked when they when I say, okay, you know, I'm paying you for this externship. They're floored. They're like, really? I thought it was unpaid. And they're fully prepared, fully happy to come down here and work for free. I do pay them, though. And that's, that's what it is, right? Mm-hmm. But even after they go up, I have kids that come down every single, they're so dedicated to learning. They come down here on the weekends. They get out of school at one o'clock, they get the two o'clock train and they're here Friday, Saturday night service and they go back because that's how dedicated they are to learning. They really want this. 
And if I, if, if I were a restaurant that didn't pay externs, they still would have come because they were really excited to be here, just as I was when I was them. And I do think that, you know, I think it's a little short-sighted for people to say, oh, well, you know, like in that one article where it was like, oh, you know, I, I, you know, I talked to a, an extern or a stage who, you know, thought that she was going to be cooking and all she did was, you know, make fruit leather beetles for 10 hours, 12 hours a day. That is something that you need to know because cooking, which everybody does not understand, but professional cooking is craftsmanship. Whoever is creating the dishes, that I view as art right and vision and all the things but if you are as a as a cook it is repetition and it is precision and you have to be able to replicate the same thing at the exact same time with the exact same precision repeatedly all day every day and that so for for somebody to say that oh i had to make fruit leather beetles and like uh, you know i thought i was going to be learning you are learning you are you're learning you're learning how to be precise, you're learning how to do something with repetition and precision. That's learning. And this is where I come back to the beginning of the conversation, right? Because there are people for whom that's not a desirable way of life. There are places you could go work where it's not, you know, there's not as much of a premium on knife cuts. There's not as much of a, you know, where, you know, tonight's special is beef stew. Absolutely. That's fine. And that's totally okay. I had a restaurant like that before. Beatrice was like that before. It was like everything was rustic. Everything was, you know. I mean, there are places where you don't need to put in those kind of like Mm -hmm. hard yards like that, you know, and then there's people who want to be like the Roger Federer of cooking. And that takes a lot of time on the practice court. Right. But absolutely. But at the same time, though, Andrew, don't you think that like even the places that are like, great, you're going to, you know, make beef stew every night, that still requires repetition and precision. And it's got to taste the same every night. It has to taste the same every night. It has night. to yes. taste the There's same every night. There's not as much night. of a premium on the presentation. On the presentation. Yes. No, what I'm I saying agree is that the you. principle of, yes. you know, the principle of repetition and precision, it applies to if you want to have a great restaurant, that's what it applies to. Right. It's consistency. There's value to be had there and I think that that's why it's important so that's why I you know that was one of the things that angered me when I read that article was I was like but that person is still getting value out of that but because they're learning a skill they're learning a di- they're being disciplined in knowing that it's like it has to be a certain way every time and that value is going to carry through to everything that that person does whether they open a food truck or they go work at three Michelin star restaurant, that value will translate. And I don't think that we should discount it. And I think it's wrong to say, oh, that's wrong. They're not learning anything because they are. Yeah, but you is... only know that if you really understand restaurants. Yeah. I mean, I hear, again, this is the thing yeah. nobody, this doesn't make it into, the, into articles. And I want to say it one more time. If, if that's not your bag, you know, anyone totally listening, fine. that's fine. That's totally fine. But again, I feel like it's a false conflict mm-hmm. because like, I, there's more types of restaurants than we've ever had. Right. And there's more ways to be a chef than there have ever been. What Jeff's article did for me was it reminded me of the joy that we can all have when we really give ourselves over to an experience to somebody else's vision, to somebody else's art. I think that there's very few people in food media that are that are really celebrating that. And I think that 
you know, there's a lot of people in the food media that are really like just driving the death of fine dining because it's not what we're seeing from our patrons. Patrons aside, and I want to get back yeah. to that in a minute. Let's take one second because I, I meant to say this a few minutes ago. I, I'm using the term fine dining. That's mm-hmm. how we introduced the conversation. You used the term fast casual before. Mm-hmm. If you'll forgive me for um, clarifying a little, I think you're just talking about casual restaurants. Casual right? restaurants, Because fast yeah. casual, we would say that's Sorry. like Chipotle, yeah. right? But you're, you're right. talking about, or quick service restaurants, right? Yes. But you're talking about just casual restaurants. Just casual it's, restaurants. It's not that fancy. It's not no. that expensive. Maybe there is even a chef with a point of view mm-hmm. who's doing their own uh, repertoire, right? Absolutely. But it's casual. We exactly. Were, we were talking before I started rolling about the Red Cat. Yes. Right? Now, the Red Cat was a casual restaurant. I love the Red Cat. Yeah, but that, you know, the chef, my friend Jimmy Bradley, had a point of view right. and a voice on the plate, right? Absolutely. But it was not an expensive restaurant. They played loud rock and roll music. You could, it was Absolutely. chill, right? It was very, come as you are, right? Exactly. You couldn't have a tasty menu if you wanted yeah. one. Okay, that's casual, okay? Fine dining, if I'm honest, half the time I don't even know what people are talking about because... Yeah. You know, Noma is at the very extreme end of the spectrum. It's very expensive. It is in normal times when they're not doing hamburgers during COVID. Mm-hmm. It is a tasty menu restaurant. Mm-hmm. You, you sign on, everyone who walks in the door is signing on to the same menu and the same base price onto mm-hmm. which you're gonna add maybe supplemental food things or uh, alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine dining. I know you've played around with the format here. You, you've you had, uh, when you first opened, the dining room was strictly... When I first opened, it was actually only prefix. And now we've moved to, we have a four-course prefix and we've got a 10-course degustacion. And I think bar was a la carte when you first Bars, opened? Bar is still a la carte. Uh, still a la carte. Yeah. Okay, that absolutely fine dining. Then mm-hmm. there are places, again, like somewhere between Red Cat and Le Trois yeah. Chavaux, which... which I would say are fine dining restaurants. Mm-hmm. They, they they don't necessarily have a prefix. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily have or offer a tasting menu, mm-hmm. but there is a certain level of technique, a certain level of, at least on the plate, ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, it may come in a casual box. It's like that old line about pornography, right? I don't know. I can't define it, but I know what it is right. when I see it. That's kind of how I feel about fine dining. Yeah, I feel like the weird thing about the Noma news is that first of all renee worded i thought his statement pretty carefully you mm-hmm. know because he said our model of fine dining right that was what he said he said our model our exactly. model of fine dining mark vetri last week wrote a, a little uh screed on his instagram where he said their model didn't work but fine dining is just fine thank you very much it's a right. little harder than it was before covid but everyone's kind of taken this ball and run with it and and that it wasn't that ball to begin with yeah, right exactly um but i just feel like there has been this broad spate of media mm-hmm. i saw something this morning I, I think it's new a week later and i'm like really another one you know but it is crazy um it's crazy but do you define fine dining the way i do Yes. Within its, yes, within that sector, it is fairly broad. Yes. There it is, is a spectrum. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It is fairly broad. And I think that, you know, and everybody is just kind of, t- it's like, I think that people think that if there's tablecloths, it's fine dining. You know what I mean? And, you know, I think that when we look at the tasting menus, the degustacion, that's like a different level, right? And, and that's fine, but it's all okay and it should all coexist. And I think that, you know, you said the word ambition earlier. And it just seems to me that the food media is kind of divided into. And the majority of it 
I feel like ambition is now just a dirty word. Ambition and luxury, those are dirty words. And I just, and I don't understand it at all. I don't represent the 1% by any means. But, um, well, I'm right there with you. But do I, you know what I mean? But, but yeah. I want to experience nice things. Fine dining is a tangible thing that we can experience. I might not be able to walk into Hermes and buy a $20,000 handbag, but you know what? I can go to Per Se and have a really lovely dinner and that should be okay. And nobody should feel guilted for that. And nobody should say like, oh, why would you go there? It's, I go there because I love it. You know what I have found, this is leading up to a question, mm-hmm. okay? And I'll, the, I'll put the question first, but then let me give it a little, you know, yeah. the color around it. The question is, isn't this a false choice? And the, and the reason I ask it is, you know, Jeff is someone I believe like me can come to a, a restaurant like yours. I've not, we've just said, mm-hmm. I have not been to Noma, but Jeff's an unabashed fan. His, mm-hmm. his uh, you know, he spent a year following Renee around the world to write a book about him. But we're just as happy eating at, you know, a neighborhood restaurant. We're just as happy eating at, you know, the hottest new uh, kind of funky place in LA, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. and and I, and there are people who maybe fine dining isn't for them, and that's fine. What I, what I fail to understand, and I do believe this is a strictly media-driven construct, mm-hmm. is that these two things exist in opposition to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like there's more ways to be a chef today than there ever have been, mm-hmm. ever, uh, by far. You can have a food truck. Mm-hmm. You can be a pop-up chef. You can be a conventional chef of a, a neighborhood restaurant or a casual restaurant mm-hmm. or a fine dining restaurant. You can create your own category. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of the meal I had, I think it was such an exciting restaurant without being weird. It's just they do certain things I hadn't seen anywhere. You know, I was in LA in October for the LA Chef Conference and I went to Yangban Society. Mm-hmm. And they do some cool stuff there. It just kind of breaks the format a little, right? you know? Um, you can do all these things. I don't know why they can't coexist. And the other thing I feel like is once you get away from like the extreme, it's like politics, right? You right. get away from the two extremes. Mm-hmm. You know, because there are people who, who, there are chefs who hate fine dining. They mm-hmm. hate it, they feel like that world was hostile to them. Maybe it was, I, I'm not mm-hmm. doubting their experience at all, right? Uh, certainly in the restaurants where they worked, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and then there's snobs on the on the other end of this on the end of the spectrum you live in, who, you know, people who say like I don't go to Brooklyn, you mm-hmm. know, like that, right. right? You talk to cooks, right? Which I think is a pretty good barometer. I have friends who are young. Some of them are queer. Mm-hmm. Definitely, a lot of them come from underrepresented populations culturally. Mm-hmm. I think virtually to a person, if I said, hey. I just got invited to go, this doesn't happen, but I just got invited to go to Per Se as their guest. I get to bring someone. I can't think of one friend of mine in that category who wouldn't be over the moon and want to come. Right. Or who don't have those books, you know? Right. They don't see it as as an us versus them. I think this is largely a media construct. So my question is, Mm -hmm. do you believe that this is a false choice, and and what do you make of that? Yeah, I absolutely believe it's a false choice. I believe I I believe that this is 100% a media construct. I think it's massively unfortunate because you know I don't understand why. 
I don't understand why it is this one sector of, I mean, it's called the culinary arts for a reason. You know, people review fashion shows all the time. That, you know, nobody is guilting the public or saying that we shouldn't buy Chanel uh, or, or Hermes, right? Uh, even though that is, that, is, that is reserved for the 1%. Absolutely. Is well, it not? Well, I think the fashion example is really interesting because mm-hmm. not only that, you know, I did a book years ago about the mm-hmm. Boku Store cooking competition, and it was right. like, well, what's the relevance of this kind of antiquated style and et cetera? And somebody said to me, the comparison they made was, well, nobody says that about fashion shows where, where things are paraded around that no one's actually going to wear. Right. You know, there are, even exa- there are examples where none of this stuff is actually going to, you're not going to see it out in the street. It, right. it exists for the show. It exists as a statement. Let's right? look at couture. Let's right. look That's at Schiaparelli. Exactly. All food is is going to be eaten at the right. very least, right? So I actually think, to your point, I think there are other arenas where functionality is, is not even a consideration. It's interesting you think of it as an art because... Early on in the show, when I was five years ago, I would ask people like Massimo Bottura and people like this, like, do you think it's an art or a craft? And almost to a person, including mm-hmm. Massimo, they were like, no, it's a craft. Mm-hmm. It, it has elements of art. Absolutely. Right? To me, it exists kind of in the middle, right? But um, I'm not debating your point of yeah. view. I think it's interesting to talk about it. Again, I don't know why there isn't room for that point of view. Because what chef do you know that's an advertiser? Nobody is going to say, oh, these brands are terrible and nobody should have them and we shouldn't, you know, it needs to go away and, you know, haute couture needs to die, right? No one's going to say that because they spend millions of dollars a year advertising. Restaurants happen to be the category of the arts, just like literature, just like Broadway, just like fashion, we just don't pay millions of dollars a year to those publications to advertise so they can say, okay, fine, we're going to kill off this section. Do you have any thoughts about what the motivations are? You? I don't understand it. No, I mean, nobody, I think that, you know, look, I, I think that the pendulum swings both ways, right? And I think right now it is swung super far over to whatever side it is. And I, like you, am just as happy going to a neighborhood spot I mean, my neighborhood spot happens to be a hole in the wall in Chinatown that I go to every single Sunday. Do I go to Per Se? Absolutely. Do I go to Per Se and I go and I sit on the sofa at Per Se more often than, you know, a lot of people. But I happen to love that. But I also go to a neighborhood spot every weekend. So for me, it's like I'm not saying one has to exist and not the other. What I'm saying is that there's room for everybody to exist. You and I had a conversation. Mm -hmm. I I find this stunning. This conversation was Mm -hmm. kind of seeded when you and I saw each other in December. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I say this? If you want me to say it, I'll take it out. You got got very upset when we we had a spontaneous Mm -hmm. conversation. And, um, you know, I kind of pulled you aside and I said, hey, am I crazy? Have you not been reviewed by a major outlet? And you said no. And then we got into this thing. Now... The Beatrice Inn, your your previous restaurant, was a big deal. It was a very popular restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, it got really good press. It got great press. And this is your next restaurant, mm-hmm. right? And I find it absolutely bizarre and conspicuous that there hasn't been a major review. I don't mm-hmm. know how that computes. This obviously was a source of upset to you. I have to yeah. think you were blindsided by this. You couldn't have expected no. when you opened your next restaurant within a block of your last one, yeah. doing uh, you know, this very 
personal. I mean, to me, it is a, it's, it's, uh, you know, this reminds me almost like a, a Quentin Tarantino movie. This is like a synthesis of stuff you really like. <laughs> yeah. Put together in a way yeah. that is an expression of you. Does that make sense yes, as a comparison? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. But you could not have imagined, you know, 18 months or so on, no review. It's wild, right? What's the emotion of that for you? And what? And maybe tell people, I think industry people will know, yeah. but what's the business implication of that? Let's start with the business implication. The reality is, is that this is a restaurant with 47 seats where I do, you know, a degustacion. I change the menu every day. Um, we're highly creative here, so everything is moving all the time. Um, and it's deeply, deeply personal. And, you know, when you open a restaurant like that with that few seats um, that you're only going to seat the room, you know, one and a half, two times a night, there's a very slim market for that right now. My food's very specific. It's like you come in here, I'm cooking the food that I love and I hope you love it too. And I want to give you something that I love and I Mm -hmm. want you to experience the cuisine through my eyes, my vision. You know, we don't do substitutions. We don't do alterations. It's like, this is what it is. Yes, it's, you know, you need some sort of critical acclaim to have people come in and be like, okay, great. I know what I'm signed up for. This is an experience. I am going to go out of my comfort zone and I'm going to try the cannelloni or whatever I have on the menu that day. Or, you know, perhaps like in an all white degustacion menu where every single course is done in a shade of ivory so that you have no sight, taste association, right? You know, but you need the media to say, you have to try this because it's the same thing as if somebody gives a Broadway play an amazing review. You're gonna wanna go and see it because it made that person feel things, made that person think about things. You know, it may be that person that's writing about the food that they ate felt something. That's our goal, right? And that's what, we, that's what you need to do. So yes, the business implications of not having, you know, reviews or Michelin or whatever, it's devastating financially. The emotional toll is equally as devastating. This place, you know, and I speak from just a personal standpoint, but this place is very much a culmination of everything that I've ever wanted to do. My last restaurant was a restaurant that I inherited. It was a name that I inherited. It was a restaurant that was open for, you know, when I inherited it, it was open for 90 years you know, so there is like an incredible amount of history attached to it. Right. We should say you were the you were the chef there, and then, and then you it. bought it. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but you know, it was such a part of New York, and it was such there so much history that I could never truly be mine. I was just a steward of it, right? And you you cook for that history, you honor that history. Whereas at Le Trois Chevaux, I was able to start from a completely blank slate and cook the food that I've always wanted to cook. Well, here's my question. You, you know, you were just talking about the press, right? You yeah. said you need p- a positive review, right? right? Is there not a part of you though that worries that this is like, um, I don't want to name names, right? But for certain critics who mm-hmm. have made, you know, driving a steak through a certain kind of dining mm-hmm. and a certain type of price point mm-hmm. and all this stuff, right? Have made that clearly an agenda. I mean, that's a risk, yeah. right? It is. But at that point, it's like, I mean, at first I was, I was sad. I was like, you know, wow, like I, you know, you loved my restaurant so much before. And I've come to the conclusion where I know that it has nothing to do with me or my food. It has to do with a very political thing. But the point is, is if you can't just judge what's on your plate, 
then you probably shouldn't be writing about it. So I, I don't understand it, but um, you know, what I do know is that like, yes, is it, you know, it's devastating financially and emotionally, right? But then there comes a certain point where, you know, and I think where I've come to, which is I can't even take the review seriously now, so why would I want one? Because I actually don't read it anymore. Cause I, and I, I don't actually, I don't think a lot of our colleagues do because we don't take it seriously anymore. It hasn't stopped my diners from coming in. It hasn't stopped, you know, the you know, the, the gourmands who really love cuisine and love, you know, love what we do. And it hasn't stopped any of that, any of those people from coming in, that attitude, right? So, because they don't take it seriously either. And I, I said this to my team too, especially after uh, the very blatant omission um, of the last awards. You know, there's no article that anybody could write. There's no award that we could get or not get or an article that anybody could write or not write to deter me or everybody here from the belief of what we're doing. We just have to look around every day and see the effect that we're having on our diners and how much they love it. And with the people coming in, returning, you know, we have a huge return rate. It's like, you know, not like people are like, oh, I'm gonna come there, I'm gonna like check it off my box and then, you know, Mm -hmm. never go back because, you know, we have a lot of people who are ardent regulars, and I love that. And that's what matters. I have to say, to that point, for I don't know what people think when they, I mean, we sh- you have a dress code here. I do. That's unusual today. Mm-hmm. It's, it's zigging where other people mm-hmm. are zagging, right? Yeah. Even like uptown in the nosebleed neighborhoods. That's part of what this is, right? Right. Um, I don't know what people think when they see that. I don't know what people think if they go and look at the, the price tag on mm-hmm. it. I, the two times I've been here, it's not, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, people being at a mature point in life, right? It's not an old crowd. No. Uh, it is a young, fashionable, mm-hmm. I mean, not not to a person, but, you know, it's, it's at the table next to us last time I was here a few weeks ago, they had a, like a, I don't know, a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old yeah. at the table. You know, it was yeah. a young family. Yeah. Um, you know, so this isn't like people trying to recapture this, like, you know, moment in time right. that you're sort of paying homage to, right? Right. It, it isn't that at all. No. Um, and in fact, the one, you know, kind of, uh, it wasn't Jeff who wrote it, it was Joshua David Stein, mm-hmm. but one prominent bit of um, acclaim that you guys did receive early on was, you know, you were on the uh, Esquire Best New Restaurant list, mm-hmm. and that is not a stodgy list. No, you know, it's a great list. So I feel like that's something worth mentioning for people who haven't been here yet or who don't <laughs> yeah. live in New York City. No, look, we're, we're really thrilled. I mean, we, you know, within opening, we, I mean, we were named one of, America's Best New Restaurants by three separate publications. So we're really, really thrilled that it received such acclaim. You know, it just became very apparent who was in the camp of fine dining restaurants need to exist and who wasn't. I think when people think like jackets required, people think, oh, it's going to be stodgy and it's stuck up. This restaurant is anything but. It was really important for me that there is an era of, of fine dining and you know, restaurants of that category that, you know, the cuisine very much pays homage to. But the environment of this room and the service that we provide is still very modern. And it wasn't my goal to open a restaurant and say, okay, this is what it was like at Lutess in, you know, in the 80s. 
my goal was to say, look, these are some of these really amazing, you know, uh, techniques in cuisine that nobody does anymore yeah. that we are going to do, but we're going to give it to you in a very modern, very feminine way. You know, it's a very feminine point of view on hospitality here. That's interesting. I didn't put that together, but that makes total sense. Yeah. yeah and to your point, it's a very, it's enthusiastic. Yeah. That's the word I would put to it. Yeah. I mean, I almost um, did a double take. Her name is Emma. Emma. Yeah. Who was our server yeah. that night or captain. I don't know what word you use here. But, you know, I remember when she was talking about the veal brain Rossini, right? Yeah. And she said, and this is a dish that we love. And I was like, this person couldn't have possibly had this before she worked here. Yeah. Right. But she's into it. But she loves it. Yeah. And that's the thing is that like yeah. the majority of my team, I mean, they're far younger than I am. And, you know, they have such an appreciation for haute cuisine and for the restaurants that came before us. There is a sector of restaurant professionals that still very much love this kind of dining. Yeah. Well, I also think there's an argument for um, having having doing this kind of food, having not experienced it. Yeah. Because I think your imagination becomes really paramount to what you're doing, right? Because mm-hmm. you're not bound by actually having eaten exactly. the thing. I was here with David Waltuck a few weeks ago of yeah. the late, great Chanterelle, and we had the salmon dish, which is kind of an homage to Trois Gros, right? Right. Well, David had eaten that dish at Trois Gros, which was fascinating because David right. was able to say to me like, you know, oh, this is really interesting. This is how it differs and this is how it doesn't, yeah. right? But you're not bound by that. And I think that is really interesting. You know, I I probably shouldn't say who because it was a private conversation. But, you know, I had a friend who used to do, he was Chinese American. Mm -hmm. He used to do his take on Chinese food. And he Mm -hmm. did a lot of research and whatnot. Had never been to China, right? Right. And we had this long talk one night about how that probably was, because you can always go, right? Always go. But in terms of developing this repertoire, it was all based on readings and looking at drawings and books and and imaginings right? right that's i think that's fascinating it's probably in ways that you know i can't again i didn't have that food either that you're yeah. riffing on but it probably in in ways that are hard to express makes it more relatable to a contemporary diner. Absolutely. You know, so it has the classic reference point, but it's not like an antique. I mean, I think the, you know, the escalope of salmon and sorrel, that's like a perfect example because, you know, I thought about that dish for two years and I kept being like, you know, I want to cook this dish. I don't know how to make it, you know, different and interesting and modern. Salmon and sorrel is not something that Togo invented. It's a very old combination, but it's a dish that they popularized Mm -hmm. and they really revolutionized. And how do you take, you know, that classic combination and not have somebody draw the comparison to Tuago? Um, And I've never, I've never eaten there. I've never had that dish. So I have no frame of reference on what it is. I just knew I wanted to do it. So for me, you know, when I finally figured it out, it's like you look at that dish and it looks, you know, yes, it's an escalope in salmon and sorrel, but it looks nothing like the Trois one. It's there's color. There's like color everywhere. It looks like a Monet painting. Mm -hmm. Right. And it feels youthful and playful, you know. And when I was thinking about doing salmon and sorrel I thought gosh like you know it's it feels like such a buttoned up dish and that was I couldn't figure it out and it took me two years to figure out how to like make it really different so we're very proud of that one I love that dish. that was my lead <laughs> very, when I did my Instagram post yeah. that was my that was my lead off I think it was uh 
I think it was Eric Repair's lead off when he had dinner yeah, like a week later. Yeah, I think later. so too. Yeah. And, and Jay McInerney said it was the best dish yeah. he'd eaten in yeah. all of 2002. Yeah. Um, in any event, this is all big, one big to be continued. Yeah. Um, I am a fan of what you do here. I'm sure I'll have said something effusive in the intro when I record it. <laughs> and I would encourage people to come check it out and to tell your friends because <laughs> somebody's got <laughs> to do that. Angie, thank you very much and great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. And that is our show for today. Thanks again to Angie Mar for joining us and sharing her thoughts and doing so honestly. I appreciate it. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which does help new listeners find the show. Our thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram, at Chef Podcast is the handle there. And we thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.